For the preaching of God's holy word, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5, and verses 17 through 20. Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And this is not human literature, but the word of the living God. Here our Lord Jesus Christ speaks about the law. And he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Congregation, the grass withers, the flower fades, But the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as a federation, we have willingly and voluntarily subscribed, among other confessions, to the Heidelberg Catechism. And in the first section of the Heidelberg Catechism, we learn about how great our sin and our misery are. In the second section of the very same catechism, we are instructed how man can be redeemed from this dismal state through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there is a third section that we practically often forget, which looks at the logical response to so great a salvation, to God's salvation from misery, from sin, from sure condemnation. And this response that we learn in the Heidelberg Catechism is gratitude. I am preaching, and I have increasingly been preaching, on this important subject because there seems to be, sadly, in our day and age, an unprecedented crisis of understanding and much confusion about the place of gratitude, and with it, about the proper place of God's law in the Christian life. And thus, the title of this sermon, Why the Law? Because of all this confusion... The Heidelberg Catechism's third section begins with question 86, which asks this very question. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? I would say that's a fair enough question. The preceding section has explained the gospel, It has rightly explained to us that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now it asks exactly the question that seems to confuse so many, even in our federation. 
And the question is this. If it is all by grace, why, oh why then works? Why the law? This is the question that confuses so many. And here is the Heidelberg Catechism's answer. Because it says, Christ, having redeemed us by His blood, is also renewing us by His Spirit into His image, so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for His benefits, and that He may be praised through us, and further so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. This is the Heidelberg Catechism's answer to this question, why in the world shall we do good works? Now, in short, the answer is gratitude. Gratitude through obedience and service. You have to understand that there is a natural, there's an inextricable connection between a true conversion and the doing of good works. Because as we read, for example, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 17, that every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. You see, what it is saying here and in so many other texts is that the Christian life must and will bring forth good works, as such are the natural fruit of regeneration. A true Christian will be eager to obey his Master and Savior, because God, and I hope you will remember this until the rest of your life, because God will never justify a man whom he later does not sanctify. There is no justification. There is no salvation without later sanctification. If there is no change in your life, if there is no trajectory that you are being transformed more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, then there is no new heart. And if there is a new heart, you will see the consequences of this new heart by a renewed will, a renewed volition that you want to become more like Christ. The Christian life is not stoic. It is not reverting backwards. It is not standing still. It is a progress, yes, with bumps in the road, as we all know, but over the long run. A true, renewed heart will have true fruit and a volition, a will to do them. And if you allow me once more to quote the Heidelberg Catechism, in question answer 91, we have three criteria as to what a good work is. When we're asked, but what are good works? And it gives us three criteria. It says, only those which are first done out of true faith. Then secondly, it says, they have to be conformed to the law of God and they must be done for His glory. 
and not those based on our own opinion or human uh, tradition. So there are two kinds of requirements for good works. Two that are internal, if we want to call them that, and one that is external. The two internal requirements for every good work are, first, they must be done out of true faith. Therefore, an unconverted person can never do a good work. Because a good work can never be done out of true faith if there is no true faith. So they must be done out of true faith. And secondly, they must be done for God's glory. Those are the two uh, internal requirements, requirements of our heart. And then there is one external requirement. It must be in conformity to God's law and not based on our own human tradition, or as the Westminster Confession adds, insinuations of Satan. Accordingly, since there are these two kinds of requirements, internal and external, where there are usually two things of requirements, there are two heresies when we get wrong on either one. There are two major pitfalls with this. If you fall on the one side and you say everything is only internal, that is an internalism. You say, oh, I have to be a believer. It has to be for the glory of God, but never mind the law. That is called antinomianism. That's the people who say, well, it's all enough to mean well. It doesn't have to be in conformity with God's law. That's the internalists, the antinomians. Anti means against, and nomos is the law. Those who are against the law altogether. And then you have the other extreme, that the ones who only focus on the external, who say it doesn't really matter what's in my heart as long as I keep the law. Those are the legalists. The externalists. Let us begin with the externalists to explain a little bit. They say, and many Pharisees and scribes were externalists, which is not hard to see from the Gospels, for example. The externalists or legalists say that we can earn salvation fully or in part through the outward, the external keeping of God's law, that we can, so to speak, earn our salvation. And this false doctrine is held by groups, for example, like so-called Orthodox Jews or the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Churches and by, sadly, millions of Americans who believe that by being somewhat nice or good, a good person, they will surely go to heaven after this life. But whatever it might be, whatever group it might be that tries to earn salvation, we have to loudly and clearly object with Romans chapter 3, verse 28, that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. This is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Salvation has never been, nor will it ever be through the external keeping of the law, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the gospel that has always been the gospel, and that will always be the gospel. So legalism or externalism is the one extreme. 
those who look too much or exclusively at the outward side of good works. But then we have the internalism or antinomianism, those who are set against the law altogether. You can also almost say those are the ones who, whose pendulum swings the other way. They, they don't want to be legalists because they are so eager not to come into this, into this uh, spiral of works righteousness that they turn away from the law altogether and dismiss it. That's a locus classicus of pouring the baby out with the bathwater. And these antinomians, uh, this doctrine is held by more or less millions, sadly, of evangelicals in this country. Sadly also, by an increasing number of people in Reformed churches, even in our own federation. And therefore, I must warn you of it. This view says that God's moral law doesn't apply anymore in the New Testament age, and it's pretty much passé. It's over. Finito. The law, they say, is something for the Old Testament administration only. And they say we are not under the law anymore, but we are under grace. We're not under the curse of the law. And therefore we are not obliged to keep the law. Well, such a view is really bad exegesis and very bad theology. This view is gravely wrong at understanding what it means not to be under the curse of the law anymore. To not be under the curse of the law anymore means not that we do not have to obey the law anymore, but that we are saved from its curse. Thus, it says, not under the curse of the law anymore. It doesn't say we're not under the law anymore. We are not, when we're in Christ, we're not under the curse anymore. Nobody keeps the law perfectly. Not even those who are true believers in Jesus Christ. But as true believers in Jesus Christ, this not keeping the law perfectly cannot harm us anymore. Because Christ has kept it uh, for us. We are safe from the curse, from the ramification of not perfectly keeping the law. And we have been saved again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and not through the works of the law. But that doesn't mean that the law is altogether passé. These two views that I have just presented to you are two perversions of the law. Legalist externalism and antinomianism, which is utterly hostile to the law. And now it becomes interesting, and I urge you to listen very carefully because I think it will click in your mind. It becomes interesting now because I'm going to tell you that the root of both the root of both of these heresies is the same. There's the same root, the same cause for these heresies for both of them, and the root is a perverted view of the law of God and a perverted view of the character of God. And here is why. Both legalism and antinomianism 
separate the law of God from the goodness of God. Think about this for a moment. There is an assumption in all of this hostility against God's law that it is not good. But if God is good, and God is entirely good, there is nothing bad in Him, then His law must be good. If God is not bad, how can His law be bad? And the law is a representation of God's character. It is standard for right and wrong. And if God doesn't change, and we are very eager to point that out, and rightly so, because that's the root of our trust in God. He's not capricious like we are. He doesn't change. Why in the world... Would his law then in the Old Testament be good and in the New Testament suddenly become bad and the enemy? And if Christ had to keep the law to save us, why in the world do we think now we don't have to keep it anymore when it caused salvation for us? That we lost salvation, that we lost communion with God because we did not keep it. Both legalism and antinomianism separate the law of God from the goodness of God. Eve in the garden disobeyed God's law because she believed Satan's lie that God in his law did not have her best interest in mind, but the opposite, that God was tricking her. This was Satan's temptation. Don't listen to God's law. Don't listen to God's precept. And not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a law. And the devil comes and says, look, God is not sincere. God is not honest with you because you will see if you disobey him, that's much better. And he says, if decides for yourself. Look at this fruit, how good it looks. And the legalist, on the other hand, allows the law to enslave him because he doesn't understand the grace of the gospel and that the law is not a means to earn salvation, but a means to love God and to be grateful for so great a salvation. So the one distrusts God in the law altogether, and the other one distrusts him because he allows the law to enslave him because he cannot grasp the grace of a true God, of a good God. Both of them mischaracterize the character of God. They separate the law of God from the goodness of God. And they make a very twisted construct that says, yes, God is good, but his law is bad which is illogical and even more importantly, unbiblical. Both of these views are clearly wrong. Good works, which are a natural response to God's grace, need both the internal and the external requirements. A converted heart that wants to glorify God and the keeping of God's law. God's moral law is the means by which true believers show their gratitude to God. You have to understand, 
this, this view against the law is like a man who gets married. And he keeps telling his wife how much he loves her. But even in the wedding night, he goes off and commits adultery. That's antinomianism. I love you so much and you're so important to me. All the while he does something that is, hurts her and is against her will. And the legalist is somebody who says, yeah, I stay at home and I stay with you and I don't look at other women, but I hate it. And I hate you. Does any one of these two views sound healthy to you? Does any of these two views sound like a person that loves? Because a person that loves, if, men, you love your wife, you will joyfully, joyfully be faithful to her. You will joyfully not look at these images. You will joyfully not look at other women. You will joyfully give yourself for your wife as Christ gave himself for the church. Originally, the Ten Commandments, of course, were written on two tablets of stone. And the Ten Commandments are not the whole law. They're just the most basic expression of God's law. And every precept in God's Word, every law, every precept in God's Word, you can trace back to one or more of the Ten Commandments. This is what I mean when I say it's the most basic expression of God's law, of His standard for right and wrong. Now, there are two major divisions when it comes to God's law, and that is moral law on the one hand and ceremonial law on the other. The moral law reflects God's righteousness, His holiness, and it is seeking to guide man's path in according to God's moral righteousness. The moral law can be subdivided again in two groups. First, the general moral provisions, that's like the Ten Commandments. The, 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 the clear, straightforward commandments like, Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, which are clear, perpetual commandments and principles. But then, in the moral law, there's another class, and these are case law examples. They, they grow out of the Ten Commandments, but they're examples, and they tell us, how do you apply this? What is the spirit of this law? And they show applications of this principle. The case laws are not literally binding most of the time, but they are binding in their general principle, in their general equity. By the way, the U.S. law system is built exactly the same way. It has been perverted, but it is a case law system. There's a constitution, and flowing out from it, there is legal principles. The American uh, legal system is a case law system, uh, very similar to the biblical system. But I give you an example from the Scriptures, what we do with these case laws. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul speaks about the minister. This is the favorite uh, case law for ministers. Paul speaks about the minister's right to be compensated, paid for his work. Beginning, he begins his argument with a quotation from the Old Testament case law. And he says, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain. That is the case law. And now he explains, Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope 
and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? So he makes the case that, that ministers or those who serve others, the people of God, with spiritual things should be compensated in return with material things. And he uses an Old Testament case law from Deuteronomy chapter 25 that when an oxen, he pulls this big stone uh, around in order to, uh, yeah, well, no more explanation because I'm going to make a fool of myself. But anyway, there was, there was stuff then laying around and the, the oxen would eat a little bit of that, but then they would put a cover, they would muzzle the oxen so they could not eat the rests from the floor. And, and the Old Testament case law says that is not right. The oxen works for you. He should have a part in his work. He should be compensated. And interestingly, Paul uses the example of oxen for ministers. Why? I don't know. We can only speculate. But he says the principle here, we're not talking about oxen here. He's talking about ministerial compensation. So he's taking this legal principle of Deuteronomy chapter 25 and applies it. And the principle is this. Whoever works for you shall be properly remunerated. It's like the, the worker is worth his salary. That's the principle. So he does not apply this case law literally, but he applies the principle. So this is just an example. If we now go back to the Ten Commandments, I said every law can be traced back to the Old Testament. Here we have an application of the commandment, uh, for example, thou shalt not steal. Oh, and also thou shalt not murder. Because if you don't feed somebody, they will starve. So here we have the Ten Commandments. Then we have a case law, how to apply it. Then we have real life situation where we take the principle. Therefore, this case law is not literally applicable, but the principle of it. But one example I have to give you that is a literal application of this case law. If you ran a biblical museum and you wanted to show how the people of that biblical time would have their oxen uh, do their work in the same way as Deuteronomy chapter 5 explains it, then the case law explains literally because it's the same case. All I'm trying to tell you is, you cannot just go along and say, the case law is not applicable anymore. If Paul himself, in 1 Corinthians, after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, still applies it. Why do we have ministers who constantly tell us that the law doesn't apply anymore? And if not the Ten Commandments, then not the case law, the other laws. Why is there such a hostility, even in our circles, against the law of God. It is not right and it is not God-honoring. That's the moral law. Then we have the uh, ceremonial law. And you might think, boring. That's all the ceremonies, right? The washings, the sacrifices. And when you read through the Old Testament, through the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, you might think, this has nothing to do with me. Well, in fact, it does. Because the ceremonial law in the Old Testament administration was the uh, application of redemptive. They were redemptive provisions. 
So if somebody had broken the moral law, he had to go to the ceremonial law in order to find provisions how to repent of this sin. And he would go through those provisions. But you have to understand, and this is important, that it was not the exercising of the ceremonial law that caused forgiveness, but the Christ behind them. So when somebody sacrificed an animal and had their hand on the animal, so to respond or to uh, symbolize that the sin of the man goes on to the animal and then the animal will be killed, slaughtered, and burned, it was a picture of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that one day the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world will come and it will be the one and for all sacrifice for all their sins. So these, all, all these ceremonies, slaughterings or sacrifices, the washings which symbolize the blood of Christ that washes away all sins, they were all gospel sermons. You can preach through the book of Deuteronomy one gospel sermon after the other. These were all gospel sermons. So while we are not bound to keep this ceremonial law because it was signs, pictures of Christ, the gospel is the same. So all these ceremonies were signs, gospel sermons, pictures of the gospel that was to come, pointers to Christ. So logically, when Christ comes, the pointers go away. If, if you drive to Kalamazoo, you see all the signs that say Kalamazoo so many miles, and then it gets less and less and less, and then you arrive in Kalamazoo. The moment you arrive the city limits of Kalamazoo, the signs disappear. Like a miracle, suddenly they're gone. Well, of course they are gone because you're now in Kalamazoo. It would make no point to have 10,000 signs in Kalamazoo that point down and say, just so you know, you're in Kalamazoo now. And therefore, these signs, the ceremonial law, that pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, as soon as Christ came, they disappeared. That's why we're not sacrificing anymore. We don't need the pictures anymore because the real thing had come. And that's the ceremonial law. Let us briefly go back to the moral law. This is important. This is really important to understand because this will come back to bite us if we're not careful. The 16th century reformers rightly presented us with three major applications, three major uses of the moral law. The first use of God's moral law is to restrain unbelievers from being as bad as they possibly could be. So every unbeliever in his heart has something like a conscience. We call it actually conscience. Where does it come from? It is what we read in Romans 2.15, that the law of God, even if it is blurry, even if it is fragmented, is somewhat on every person's heart, and that constitutes his conscience. The second function of the law is to convict sinners of their sin and to drive them to the Lord Jesus Christ, to drive them to the cross. This is how people get converted. The only way for them to understand that they need a Savior and that they are sinners is by the law. Without the law, there is no sin. So it drives sinners to Christ, as we read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. The law was our tutor, or the Greek word, our pedagogue. Our, our school teacher to bring us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. That's the second use. The third use is to reveal 
to us as believers. God's ethical system in order for us to live by it as God's covenant people. So when God, we are as believers, partners, partakers in the covenant of grace. We are saved within the covenant of grace. When a person comes to Christ, it becomes partaker of the covenant of grace. And there's two major benefits in this covenant. The first one is a restored fellowship and relationship with God. And the second one is the dictated order of life. You see this in the Ten Commandments themselves when you read them. First, God reminds Israel that He is their Redeemer, that He has saved them out of uh, Egyptian slavery as a picture for the gospel. Then He leads them to Mount Sinai and He gives them the law. The gospel has not changed. God redeems us and then He gives us a dictated order of life, which is His Word. And now we come along, smart theologians, with our novel ideas, and suddenly say, no, 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 it's all grace. We don't need to obey anymore. Like the husband who commits adultery. Hey, it's all grace. Our whole relationship is built on love and grace. I'm going to commit adultery every day. Absurd. It's absolutely absurd. It, it's, it's completely out of logic, and it's complete conflict with the Word of God. But this third of use of the law is what I'm talking about, and what the Heidelberg Catechism is talking about mainly in its third section. Gratitude. Gratitude. In gratitude for our salvation, we obey God's law. And this is the use, this third use, that most so-called antinomians deny And it seems to become more and more fashionable, even in conservative Reformed circles, to deny this third use of the law. Donald Gray Barnhouse, I hardly ever mention a name in the pulpit, but this is common knowledge. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the famous pastor of the equally famous 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia and famed author, wrote this in his commentary on Romans. You will not believe this. This is a Presbyterian who had given vows on the Westminster standards who are almost congruent with the three forms of unity. This is what he wrote. He wrote it was a tragic hour when the Reformation churches wrote the Ten Commandments into their creeds and catechisms and sought to bring Gentiles into bondage to Jewish law which was never intended either for the Gentile nations or the church. This is a horrendous statement, and it is in stark conflict with biblical teaching. This was most likely written in the 1950s, and the Reformed world hasn't become any better since then, but for a large part has declared war on the law of God. Whether they call it antinomianism or radical two-kingdom doctrine, natural law theory, republication doctrine, or extreme redemptive historic preaching, it is always the same manifestations of the same long war against God's law. A war that began in the garden, and a war that all those who fight it are bound to lose. Now back to our text. Now we can bring it all together. Jesus said this about the law in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now these antinomians will tell us, there you have it. There you have it. He's abrogating the law by fulfilling it. He's abolishing it by fulfilling it. Well, let's try it. Let's, let's read it this way. Abolish. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to abolish them. This is how they interpret this text. The word but is a strong adversarial conjunction. It means opposite. I have not come to abolish it, but to do it. And thus shalt you. And he continues. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth has passed away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you have to explain to me how so-called reformed men can stand in pulpits and tell the congregations that the law is passé, that we have not to preach any application, that we do not have to do good works in conflict with our confessions and far worse in conflict, in clear conflict with the Word of God. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then in verse 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is it who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Why are they not burdensome? Because we love its author. We love to do what is good, just like you love, husband, to do something good to your wife. It's not burdensome. It's an act of love, an act of gratitude. And here's what you need to understand, whatever the cost, and what so many don't understand. Law is not the opposite of grace. Never has been. The opposite of, of uh, law is not grace but lawlessness. Law and grace are not opposites. The law is not the enemy of the gospel. It is the expression of gratitude for the gospel. Therefore, God's law is at no cost to be discarded. It has not been abrogated. And God's moral law is therefore still binding for us. It is essential for us to know and understand this law is God's binding rule for all men, believer and unbeliever. The difference is where we fail, Christ's blood will cover us. 
It will not cover the unbeliever. Let me close this evening with a few words from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Beloved, may God help us to find a new appreciation for his holy law, not as a slave master, but as a means of gratitude for our salvation, which was entirely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen and amen. Let us pray together. Almighty God, our most gracious Heavenly Father, oh, how we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. How we thank you for our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone. And now help us, O Lord, to express this love in a newfound appreciation for your precepts, that we keep them not out of pressure, not in order to find or earn salvation, but because we have been saved by grace alone. May we walk in in your ways joyfully. May we show our gratitude joyfully and walk in your ways, walk in your laws, not only because it's the right thing to do, but because your law is good. O Lord, help us, for we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. Amen.